are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Manatini, and here I interview neuroscientists, as well as engineers, physicists, and mathematicians, and discuss their work, as well as the latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. And today I'm talking with Dr. Nicola Stickoff. Dr. Stickoff is professor of biomedical engineering, a researcher at the Montreal Heart Institute, and co-director of NeuroPoly, the Neuroimaging Research Laboratory at Polytechnic Montreal. Dr. Stickoff received his PhD at Stanford University, working with John Pauly and Dwight Nishimura, then carried out his postdoctoral training with Dr. Bruce Pike at the Montreal Neurologic, Neurological Institute. In 2014, Dr. Stickoff was elected junior fellow of ISMRM, International Society of Magnetic Resonance Medicine. His research spans the gamut of quantitative magnetic resonance imaging, from basic issues of standardization and accuracy to biophysical modeling, microstructural imaging, and clinical applications. His group is particularly interested in developing and validating novel biomarkers for non-invasive characterization of the brain and heart microstructure during development, disease, and treatment, thus pushing the boundaries of the emerging field of in vivo histology. Nicola is a physicist, engineer, and a strong proponent of quantitative and reproducible MRI for further clinical traction and impact, promoting open science, creating shared analysis toolboxes, and fostering data and code sharing across researchers and vendors. As mature as MRI is, we're still scratching the surface of what information it can provide. He's also a gifted and passionate communicator, as you'll see in this, in this podcast. Over the years, he's become active in open science and science communication, founding the MRM Highlights, OHBM blog, and also the Canadian Open Science Platform, uh, known as COMP. He's also the founder of MR Balkan, a conference series associated with ISMRM that has been held in the Balkan Peninsula in Macedonia, Turkey, and Slovenia. Uh, this conversation touches on his penetrating research, as well as issues in pushing the field forward through open science. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Okay, hello, uh, Nicola Stikoff. Uh, Hello. Thanks for coming on the podcast and and uh, and sharing sharing what you do, what you what you think about, and uh, um, uh, in your in your part of the interface between uh, uh, MRI and, and brain mapping, uh, and also other things. So thank you, thanks for coming. <laughs> uh, and so let, let's just um, you know we have a lot uh, to talk about. Uh, you're very you're very active. Uh, in your research, of course, which is uh, uh, one of my, actually, it's not my area of expertise, but it's one of the things I really like thinking about most, even in the context of fMRI, is, is the idea of using MRI, uh, using all the dimensions that you can explore with MRI, with, with pulse sequence modulation and processing, to pull out 
anatomic and physiologic information. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about all your, hopefully uh, all, your, all your work with uh, uh, and your passion in terms of uh, uh, communicating, sharing information, and also your work on, on trying to make the, the field more reproducible uh, and, and go from there. So, so just to begin, a little bit of background. Um, uh, so how did you first become interested in, M in MRI? Uh, and what so, sort of motivated you? Yeah, so I, I don't think I got interested in MRI. Uh, <laughs> I think I got interested in John Pauly. <laughs> and uh, you know, for, for those that don't know, John is a professor at Stanford. And uh, I actually met him as he just started his faculty position and I was his teaching assistant. And I just, I just love the way John thinks. He doesn't say much. Uh, if you've met him, you would know. But the things yeah. that he does say, they tend to stick with you. And then basically, I picked my supervisor before I picked my research topic. And he just happened to be working on MRI. And I ended up working on MRI with him. That's, yeah, no, I know. I, I've, I've talked to John a number of times. And, and I know exactly what you mean. I, I was aware of his work early on. And uh, he's, he's an amazing person. And he has a presence. And he, he usually what he says is right. Uh, in that regard, so uh, so so what I mean so before that your 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 background your undergraduate was was that in physics or was that no it's electrical engineering so I've been electrical throughout electrical okay. undergrad at Stanford then a master's then a PhD uh, and then a slight stint at the MNI with neurology and neurosurgery but then now I'm back to Polytechnic where I'm a professor of electrical engineering okay okay uh, but uh, also John is in electrical Dwight Nishimura as well and. Uh, Basically, we, we started working on uh, some uh, topics related to RF pulse design, uh, single-sided outer volume suppression for uh, prostate imaging, prostate spectroscopy, actually. And I submitted my first abstract, that's 2006. And I presented, and I'm very happy, and Patrick LaRue, one of the RF pulse gurus, comes and talks to me. And then I go to John's office afterwards. And I say, so John, do we write a paper about this? And he says, well, you should calculate the opportunity cost. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it takes a while to unpack, you know, what John says. So I'm like, okay, you know, I, I'll think about it. And then I come back to him and I'm like, okay, John, I calculated the opportunity cost. This paper is really in the title of my abstract, single-sided outer volume suppression, RF pulses for spectroscopy in the prostate. I don't want to spend 10 pages explaining it. The abstract is there. What should I do next? And he says, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and, then, and then I have about a year of soul searching, you know, like, what do I actually want to do? And this is where uh, Brian Wendell and Bob Duggerty from the psychology department step in. They were really passionate about this idea for quantitative MRI and getting numbers out of the images. Yes. I pitch it to John. He's like, that's great. You should do it. And uh, that's eventually when I kind of shifted gears and started working on quantitative MRI. Okay. Okay. That's, yeah. And, and, and that was actually one of the earlier papers that I, that I noticed um, when, when looking across your, on Google Scholar, right? Uh, this paper, quanti Quantifying Local Tissue Volume and Composition in Individual Brains with MRI. In Nature Neuroscience in 2013, and I feel that I mean certainly I mean for the past 30 years MRI has been uh, you know it's interesting I'm surprised that there are not more phys I mean there's a lot of physicists in the field but there's I'm surprised actually there's not more because there there really is so much you can do with MRI uh, in terms of adjusting the pulse sequences uh, to to try to to pull out you know everything from diffusion to exchange to structure. 
uh, to anisotropy, whatever. And this paper, though, was was unique in the sense that it was one of the first, in, in my mind at least. I mean, there's been papers sort of along the lines before, but it sort of it sort of put the the stake in the ground in terms of uh, getting very precise information, quantitative information, uh, uh, you know, what you call uh, macular, macular, macromolecular tissue volume. Uh, and then you combine that with other measures like T1 or protein density to pull out further information. And, and so, uh, so without going into that paper itself, uh, I mean, would you agree that, uh, so, so it, that paper feels like it sort of was at the beginning of, of this attempt at, at more quantitative MRI or even, I mean, certainly diffusion has been around for years before this, but this actually tried to go a little bit beyond that to, to get more at microstructure and, and more quantitative measures. Like how has the field gone since then? So you're right that that's kind of the early wave of let's complement uh, different measurements uh, and try to give some physiological interpretation to them. And uh, this is a paper that Aviv Mezer took the lead on and he, he was so determined to get it out and to get it out in nature medicine uh, and in the end, uh, it, it took a lot of effort to convince the reviewers that this is valuable because in its essence, this article, the way I view it, it's a calibration paper. Yes. It's showing how can you take different scanner field strengths and still manage to get the same metric so that you're independent of the platform on which you do the measurement. And uh, it took many revisions. It took many um, uh, appendices in that article. If you read it, it's like 10 pages followed by 20 pages appendix. But in the end, I think it convinced people that look, we can calibrate these measurements. It just takes some serious work. And you're right, it takes some physicists to interpret what's going on. It takes some engineers to make it actually feasible. And it takes clinicians to actually believe the measurement, which I think we're still not there yet, but we're getting there. Yeah, yeah, and, and and we'll get into talking about sort of the the actual clinical implementation, which is a is a huge aspect of this as well. But so uh, you've gone on in your career, and a few papers stand out uh, as far as a few you know at least as far as uh, quantitative work is concerned. And there's been a big push in terms of uh, imaging myelin uh, with MRI, and you know obviously myelin is we're finding it's you know, has many different roles. It's fundamentally important. It's, it's potentially a biomarker for dis disease and disorders. And uh, how, so basically you had a couple of papers um, in vivo histology of myelin uh, looking at the G ratio. So, uh, so maybe talk briefly about what the G ratio is and, and, and maybe how you're trying to image myelin and applying it, if you could. Yeah, so uh, the G-ratio idea, again, that comes from that collaboration with the psychology department at Stanford. Yeah. Uh, they were doing some reading studies and they were looking at differences in the diffusion measures uh, uh, in the brains of readers. And then they wanted to explain that with myelin. And uh, I was taking Brian Wendell's vision class back then and uh, Bob Duggerty was a close collaborator. Uh, and basically they approached me and he said, can we do quantitative MRI? And I was like, okay, sure. You know, we could do some uh, very basic measurements some T1, some magnetization transfer ratio. And uh, it was around that time that uh, Bob had the insight, well, if we combine the diffusion with the magnetization transfer, then you're actually putting together two complementary metrics and you're sensitizing the measurement to the myelin thickness. Yeah. And uh, that was happening just towards the end of my PhD. 
So it's not actually in my thesis. Uh, we developed that uh, during that one summer, about six months between my PhD and the beginning of my postdoc. And we said, all right, you know, looks like combining these two makes sense intuitively. Calling it G-ratio, well, theoretically it makes sense. We yeah. wanted to have G-ratio in the title of that initial article, it's 2011, I believe. Okay. And then the reviewers hated it. They were like, no, you can't call that G-ratio. So we kind of stuck it in kind of as a pre-registration. And uh, the cool thing is that the idea is you want to look at the thickness of the myelin sheath. And that can have implications in uh, disease. Uh, for example, in multiple sclerosis, you have demyelination and you have axonal loss. G-ratio can help us distinguish which one is it. Uh, but also in normal brain development, uh, for example, there's differences in um, uh, myelin content in uh, boys and girls. So there's a sexual dimorphism. And one of the theories is that uh, you have testosterone that actually blows up the axons in boys. And as a result, that gives a slightly smaller uh, G-ratio. Uh, sorry, a slightly higher G-ratio, so a slightly thinner sheet. Yeah. Uh, also some speculative theories about autism and how it's primarily uh, boys that get it and maybe related to some microstructural properties of the myelin. So there's lots of interesting questions you can ask about the G-ratio. And that's what I did in 2015 during my postdoc. We did the experiment. We showed that in a monkey, we got a uh, uh, myelin measure. We did histology. We showed that we are actually capturing the G-ratio. But this is where kind of doubt sets in, you know, like here it is, people are excited about this, but I know the theory of the G-ratio. Uh, my dear colleague, Dmitry Novikov calls it trivial. And I take it as a compliment <laughs> because it's true. If you have the myelin volume fraction and you have the fiber volume fraction, you divide them, you take the square root, that's a G-ratio measure. Yes. In reality, you take one noisy measure, myelin volume fraction, and divide another noisy measure, fiber volume fraction, you divide them and then you take a square root. <laughs> <laughs> talk, talk about noise, right? Yeah. And that's why I decided, you know, this is great. It got me my job. I still believe in the theory of it. But if we're ever to properly measure the G ratio, I better get right those things that actually go inside the square root. And yeah. that's why I've kind of shifted more into let's get some more basic quantitative MRI measurements right. And only then let's talk about the G ratio. Yeah. Yeah. Or even, I mean, yeah. Okay. So that's actually, so the right, the G ratio is measures an aspect of, right. The myelin, the thickness of the myelin sheath. And so, but just backing up a little bit, just, just imaging myelin to begin with, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential ways of just imaging myelin, like you're looking at T1 or looking at the ratio of T1 to T2 star. And, and actually it's funny because I, I look at these maps and, uh, and, and people are doing it, uh, you know, just interviewing uh, Nicholas Weisskopf, uh, you know, people, the higher resolution you go, the more interesting the myelin structure gets, it seems. You, you have these, you know, U-fibers that are connecting cortical to cortical or even within the cortex. And um, it seems that, that, I mean, the myelin story is still, I mean, it, one thing also really cool about MRI is that you, you sort of get something that is related to the underlying physiology or structure and you can start to image it. And then suddenly it opens up these questions, you know, what is the, why is myelin, my, I mean, everyone initially thinks when you think of myelin, you think of white matter tracks, you think of, you know, uh, just, you know, white matter for the most part, but then you see myelin in, in motor cortex or uh, visual cortex and you wonder, you know, why is it there? What, uh, do you have a, um, uh, I mean, I, uh, any thoughts on, on sort of the, the different roles of myelin or why, and why, yeah, I mean, certainly it's important to disorders as well, but uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm an electrical engineer, so I see circuits everywhere. <laughs> so myelin is an insulator. <laughs> so whatever plastic does to electric cables, 
that's what myelin does to axons. Yes. And I know I'm being very unjust and not very subtle here. <laughs> and I'm sure that neuroscientists will have way more interpretations. But my research is more about, all right, I understand it as an insulator. Let's see what that produces. So for example, conduction velocity. You know, Again, an electrical circuit kind of analogy. Uh, transmission of information. Uh, if you have uh, damage to the myelin sheath, well, that will affect the conduction velocity. And then that could manifest itself in many ways. It could manifest itself in motor disorders. Uh, uh, anything that you know, messes with the dynamics of the system is really key to understanding how the system works. Yeah. And uh, that's partly why we've also moved a little bit to, into the connectome space to try to add some weights related to myelin and try to interpret those differences as uh, conduction velocity changes. Yes. Uh, to me, that's the fascinating aspect. That's where I would like to take the research. Uh, and in the process, of course, we'll be able to get some measures about uh, uh, pathologies in multiple sclerosis, for example. You lose myelin, you know that that will have some very drastic consequences. And maybe some of these measurement techniques will be able to capture myelin loss and myelin decay early before it becomes evident on a T1 or a T2 weighted image. So yeah. there is diagnostic potential there. Let's get a number so that the number raises a flag. And there's also a neuroscience potential. Let's use this number as a proxy for a very real physiological process, such as conduction velocity, so that we understand uh, brain dynamics. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, uh, and and it just really it really does feel like we're, we're just beginning to get a handle on you know the, the studies are still to be done in terms of uh, understanding the relationship between myelin and, and the myelin structure and, and these various disorders or even you know developmental processes or whatever. Also, myelin seems like I mean one. Sort of flipping around the the conduction velocity idea, it also seems like a uh, you know areas that purposely you don't want to have that variable are are myelinative. So for instance, maybe the primary motor cortex, you really want that to work and not change too much. And whereas the frontal cortex, frontal lobes are are not as myelinated because maybe they're more adaptable or flexible. And so it's maybe a a, a scaffolding that, that's applied in some sense. So. Yeah, and I think this is where it's really important to point out that myelin is orthogonal to diffusion imaging. You know, diffusion is blind to myelin. The echo times in diffusion are so long that you lose all information about anything related to macromolecules. Yeah. And just the very fact that people have been doing uh, connectome analysis and trying to interpret a lot of the connectome through diffusion measures means they've been ignoring about 30%, 40% of the signal that comes from the insulator. That's and there you are you know, trying to uh, use number of streamlines as a proxy for the weights between different brain regions or FA, but FA is a diffusion derived metric. And in a way you're double dipping, you know, you're doing the connectome using diffusion imaging, and then you use a diffusion derived metric to weigh the connectome. Yes. It makes more sense to use something that's completely orthogonal. A myelin metric doesn't correlate with FA and say, well, now we're actually combining two things derived from a different kind of measurement process to come up with a more coherent story. I think that increases the robustness. It, it creates for a better conditioned system. Yeah. So that so you had a recent paper just came out in Network Neuroscience, I guess, and uh, uh, R one the R one rated connectome complementing brain networks with a myelin sensitive measure. And and so what did you find? I mean, so you're just saying that that it seems that the myelin based connectivity or the myelin weighted uh, connectivity is is different. I mean, what does that imply? What does that imply right. about 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that particular paper, I think the battle is again, was again to have myelin in the in the title. <laughs> uh, because again, people don't read past the title, right? You know, in, when I didn't get the G ratio in the title of that 2011 paper, I regretted it for four years. I should have pushed harder. So uh, I think to me, just recognizing that we do have a connectome that's weighted by R1, which is just inverted T1. So one of the basic fundamental uh, MRI parameters and calling it a myelin weighting was a big victory because that means people can now plug in an MP2 rage sequence, which is stock on Siemens or you know, any other very simple T1 mapping modality and use it as a weight and say, now we have a different kind of connector. So that particular article was more about showing how using a myelin weight as opposed to number of streamlines or FA produces a different uh, uh, connectome. And I mean, one of, the, one of the observations was, well, unimodal versus uh, transmodal regions. It seems like unimodal regions will have uh, more streamlines, but slightly lower R1. Uh, transmodal will have slightly higher R1, but fewer streamlines. It's all very speculative. You know, can we say that like you uh, implied, maybe certain regions really need the myelin uh, more to be able to function. And those uh, would uh, tend to be the regions uh, with, uh, uh, that are, that are uh, uh, transmodal, so higher R1 weighted average. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, I just wanted to give the tools so that we can take those and actually apply it to the study of disease. Yeah. And uh, what we're doing is now that that paper is out, my PhD student, Tommy Boschkowski recently graduated, but he's wrapping up to another paper where we use the same uh, analysis uh, in uh, Parkinson's disease. And uh, now we can talk about differences between healthy subjects and patients, and also try to identify particular regions where you have uh, differences in the myelin content between healthy and uh, uh, patients. That is where we'll try to be better at the interpretation of what it actually means. For yeah. now, all I can say is it's very different. And it's not surprising because a myelin metric is completely orthogonal to a diffusion metric. Yeah. That's actually, I mean, it's, the fact that it's orthogonal, right, is, 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 is key because of the fact that it sort of contains unique information that you just don't get with diffusion. And, and yeah, it could be very, very complementary in that regard. I mean, you know, we're always searching, I mean, that's the thing with MRI, we're always searching for these actionable biomarkers. And right now, we're still at this, sort of at the stage of just T1 weighted, T2 weighted, and, you know, lesions show up and things like that. I mean, there's so much more potentially we can do. I mean, sort of parallel in some way to fMRI too, where you're, you're, you have, the more you try to get quantitative and specific, the more, the more noisy uh, things get, but the more quantitative they get, yeah. yeah absolutely, and that's, and that's the big dilemma in quantitative MRI. And in a way, I think fMRI has gone farther because you have statisticians working on these problems. Whereas we're the physicists who just, you know, come up with a great model, five, 10 free parameters. It's very specific to myelin, but we don't have the statistician to tell us, well, but what's your power here? You know, come on. <laughs> so you have this tension between T1 mapping has been around for a long time. It's fast. It's broken. I can tell you all the ways in which it's broken, but it's fast and it's fixable and it's flexible. Yeah. Yes. And then you have methods that are, you know, quantitative magnetization transfer, which is something that I've invested a lot of years in. And I know all the problems with it including what happens when you fix one of the parameters or when your initial condition is not uh, what you want it to be, going into some uh, local minima that uh, you know, give you uh, counterintuitive results. And yeah. then that tension can be resolved. You know, there's the SNR efficiency, how long does the T1 take as opposed to a QMT? It's a factor of five, sometimes a factor of 10 in duration. Yes. Uh, there is also the scan rescan. Can I scan rescan T1? What is its repeatability? Can I scan rescan QMT? 
And you end up with these really weird observations where, for example, you argue that QMT, and I'm bashing on QMT because it's my work. I feel like, you know, I, I don't want to be so fair to others. Why don't you just explain what QMT is really quickly? Yeah, QMT, QMT is quantitative magnetization transfer. So everybody uh, has agreed that magnetization transfer does sensitize the measurement to myelin, but it depends on the offset frequency. It depends on the pulse uh, flip angle. Uh, so we've uh, derived a metric that's a little bit more reproducible across sites. And it's called uh, quantitative, so it's called fractional pool size derived from quantitative magnetization transfer. Bottom line, a metric that is very specific to myelin from the model, but when you do a scan rescan, you see that its scan rescan is comparable to the correlation between QMT and T1. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> there you are, you know, saying T1 is not really myelin, but T1 will correlate with your myelin metric as much as its myelin metric will correlate with itself. And then we have all these discussions, particularly in closed, you know, peer review of articles where articles get rejected because you didn't use a good myelin metric. Huh. And <laughs> battle finally is getting resolved because of another paper we published, which was a meta-analysis of MRI biomarkers and relationship to histology. And huh. thanks to the meta-analysis, we managed to convince the reviewer who had that exact comment in this article about uh, the myelin-weighted connectome that look, T1 is just as good as the other myelin metrics. Pick your poison. It's not ideal. It's not very specific, but it's statistically interchangeable with another myelin metric. Yeah, yeah, and and, and just that's actually that's a, a <laughs> those are the battles that right that that uh, that we're constantly fighting in that regard. But so regarding that paper too, um, uh, I actually like that. I like I liked at least looking it up. You know, you basically try to lay out the the, the landscape of you know, what, what can myelin potentially, what can myelin sensitivity, even if it's just T1 weighting and what, what are the potential clinical uses? And you just, you just massive uh, correlation with, or this massive sort of meta-analysis of how it correlates with these disorders. So what was, what were the most hopeful ones? Like you mentioned, it might be MS or, or Parkinson's. Or right. So uh, this, is, this is where I'm more comfortable talking about this, just because uh, we did get Tom Nichols uh, to be a joint last author on the work. And I feel that that really kind of gave us our statistical uh, stronghold. Uh, and basically I kept bugging Tom. He's like, Tom, can I say this? You know, like, is this, is this proper uh, terminology? Yeah. And in the end, we, we ended up with this term statistically interchangeable that, you know, that they, 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 they cannot be statistically distinguished from each other. Uh, but in the end, of course, different myelin metrics will have better potential in different conditions because some conditions have inflammation. Well, inflammation, yep. that's kind of a water-based yep. uh, mechanism. Uh, some will have demyelination and those might benefit more from a magnetization uh, a transfer kind of treatment. But uh, when we looked at, so we grouped and it's an interactive analysis. So people can kind of go and play with it, group it by animal model, uh, disease model, human ex vivo versus in vivo. And we also grouped it by a different type of histology done because that's a big source of variability. And we grouped it by pathology. Now, when you group it by pathology, by the type of disease, uh, multiple sclerosis does stand out. And uh, that's encouraging because a lot of the myelin work came from trying to characterize uh, lesions in MS. But it makes sense from a purely statistical standpoint because MS is a condition where you have a big dynamic range. Yeah. And this is a condition where you go from full demyelination and a lesion to gradual recovery and everything in between, normal appearing white matter also being slightly lower in myelin than, than uh, healthy white matter. Whenever you have a huge dynamic range, you will have much better correlations with the underlying um, validation tool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, just because the noise is smaller, it rides on right. top of a bigger uh, variation. Or the effect so size is, yeah. 
Exactly, exactly. So on one hand, it's encouraging to say there are some conditions where myelin imaging is really capturing something true that I feel great about. But the reserve I have is if I just blow up things out of proportion and kind of, you know, make white matter be all the way in one corner and gray matter be in another corner, I will give you even better correlations. <laughs> Does that mean that I have a good myelin metric? No, I think it just means understanding the limitations, picking your poison and not uh, talking down the other approaches uh, because each will find a particular kind of application. Yes. And uh, I think leveling the field is very important for peer review so that when people do myelin imaging, they don't have to deal with this constant kind of justification of their physics. Yes. Uh, and also for a clinical application where you'll tell the clinician, it's a stock sequence, just click it. You don't need a very complicated model and post-processing tools uh, that uh, are dependent on a master research agreement with a vendor. Yeah, so, and, and also just to be clear too, um, so what, what you're basically looking at is, is uh, myelin water in some sense. I mean, some, there, is a, there is some discussion in MRI of trying to look image myelin directly. Uh, do you think that's worth yeah, so it? So there's I mean, a couple of camps. Um, uh, the, the myelin water folks, that, those would be the relaxometry folks, you know, like the people saying T1 is uh, myelin. That would be Bob Turner, who's been saying this for, for ages. Yes. Uh, and uh, then there would be the UBC folks, Alex McKay, Corey Lolly, uh, lots of people there that are doing multi-component T2 and trying to get uh, the water trap between the myelin sheets. Uh, there is a way of sensitizing your measurement to the macromo macromolecules, you know, like the macromolecules that are uh, part of the hydroxyl, uh, that have hydroxyl groups that are in the actual uh, protein and fat. Yeah. And for that, magnetization transfer will do a better job. Yes. But again, it's an indirect measurement because you're exciting those macromolecules, then they exchange magnetization with the water, and in yep. the end, you have a reduction in the signal. So in the end, you're right. It does come down to measuring water in all its uh, shapes and forms and compartments. Yes. Uh, and uh, it's, I, I, I agree. That's, that's a good way of thinking about it. Even if you are really just measuring water, there is a relationship between the absolute myelin content and the water content. Yes, yeah. Okay. Okay. And so, 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 um, so just to go beyond myelin a little bit, um, uh, just to shift gears a little bit. So is there any other, so are you working on, I mean, so to me, it, it seems that MRI is sort of poised at this stage where we're, we're still, even after 30, 40 years, we're still getting a handle on what we can do with it. It seems that there's other histological information that's possible. Like, and even, even things like, um, I mean, is it possible even, you know, you're getting myelin, you're getting chi ratio. There's some people actually even trying to get at, uh, uh, you know, neuronal cell size or, or um, uh, uh, and actually also even looking at, you know, iron or neuromelanin or other things like that. But also I, I have often thought there's two things that I, I mean, one thing actually, just trying to get at neuronal densities or just, is there, is it possible do you think that MRI can actually eventually come up with something like a Broadman's map of, of cell type um, potentially? Yeah. Uh, so um, I'll, I'll try not to be, I, I'm not facetious, but I will tell you instead of a Broadman map, how about a T1 map? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I'll, you know, I'll argue my way out of this, but yeah. I, I, I think that's what the field needs. Um, Basically, uh, once you realize that you have to pick your poison, you ask me, so can I really measure iron or can I measure glia? You know, whatever it is that you want to quantify. And I could go on this whole 
uh, rant on, oh, you know, you have to have at least two shells, this many directions, and uh, you can't fix too many of the parameters because that will really sensitize you to uh, different uh, microstructural properties. Or it could tell you, just do T1. <laughs> and then you're like, but T1 is not really iron. I was like, well, but the stats show you that in the end it will correlate. And it's more important to have one metric that we all trust. Yeah. That we know is the same on every scanner. And you have the number that will be reproducible no matter what you do, rather than build other things on top of T1 like I'm doing with the G ratio. You know, T1 and then magnetization transfer and then myelin volume fraction. And then diffusion, two shell, naughty, divide, <laughs> take a square root. So T1 is so fundamental yes. that it's scary, surprising, scary that we haven't fixed it yet. It's been around from the beginning of NMR. Yes. And yet our gold standard is lacking. Yeah. Um, people implemented many different ways. And then I usually try to draw an analogy with measuring temperature. You know, unless you have a cutoff 37, uh, you cannot say if somebody has a fever or not. Sure, okay. you can say they're hotter or they're colder, but would anybody be measuring their temperature if they don't know that 37 is the cutoff? So that's the analogy with T1. Yes. Would anybody use T1 or any other quantitative MRI metric by proxy if I don't trust any one of them? Yes. So to me, a Broadman map for quantitative MRI would really be a T1 map or a T2 map or something very, very basic because we know that it varies throughout the brain and if we can use it as a segmentation, as a classification tool, as a cutoff tool for different kinds of decisions, diagnosis, that gets us very far. Yes. And then sure, combine it with T2 so that you can be more specific to intracortical myelin, T1 over T2. That's what David yeah. Vanessen has been doing. Or yeah. you know, combine it with the T2 relaxometry so that you're more specific about the water. Yes. Uh, all those things could happen and then you can have different kinds of maps, an iron map, a axon diameter map, a G ratio map, but we're lacking that first fundamental Broadman map, which I would, I would say is just a basic parameter, but make it vendor neutral, make it easy to implement everywhere on every scanner. And, and actually that's exactly uh, right as far as getting into this. Um, so you even had a paper on, on uh, earlier on, on you know, different ways of measuring T1 come to you know, have similar results in a phantom, but different results in, in, in brains. And, and that sort of implies that the different ways are, are tapping into different, maybe contrast mechanisms that are unique, you know, that are not, that are more complex than just in a phantom in some sense. And, um, but then we'll get into the scanner, the vendor issues, which is, a, is a, another issue in itself. Yeah, I was so kind of curious about that. I'll start, I'll start with the phantoms because that's very important. You know, we need to validate every measure in a standardized phantom. Now, this is where Katie Keenan at NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology is doing amazing work. They do have a phantom that is commercially available and I advise every site that does any kind of quantification to have it, quite a few do. Uh, so then first you say, okay, am I getting the same numbers in the same phantom? Uh, you could do it with a gold standard measurement. If you want to be uh, adventurous, try it with something faster, but at least have the gold standard implemented. Next step, okay, phantom validation gone human validation, in vivo validation. This is where you want to take the same subject, put them in a couple of different scanners, maybe with different pulse sequences, see what kind of T1 values uh, come out. And then you get to kind of clinical level populations and see whether you can observe the differences. And this is where we're reaching two major roadblocks related to each other. One would be a lot of these tools are developed in-house. These are physicists tinkering in their basements uh, and uh, the vendors do not carry them. Or if they do, 
they package them as a black box. And with every scanner upgrade, the black box changes. Yes. And there's these parameters that are called, uh, um, uh, what is it, empirical factors. They're just fudge factors that change <laughs> so that you can kind of, you know, get the right number. Yes. So you need to think out of the black box, number one. And two, you need to get the community to contribute because people will want to use your thing if you make it easy to use. Yes. And this is where we started the project called QMR Lab. The tagline is quantitative MRI under one umbrella. And this is kind of, I would say that's the next 10 years of my career. Uh, I'd really like to understand, uh, to help people understand that we need an app store. We need something that's a marketplace for different kinds of quantitative MRI parameters that is easy to download, easy to install, hopefully transparent, so that every upgrade doesn't mess up your measurement. Because if it's quantitative, quantitative makes no sense unless you can peek inside the black box that generates the numbers. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and okay, so let's get into that. So, so you've uh, sort of in, in, the, in the field of, of reproducibility and also clinical limitation. I mean, certainly the, 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 the culture is basically uh, you know, vendors have their black boxes, as you say, and, and there's some similarity among the pulse sequences, but they're not, they're not identical, but, they're, but the, the way MRI has been used, they're sort of good enough. A uh, radiologist looks at it and says, oh, there's a tumor, there's lesion, T1 weighted, whatever. Uh, that's good enough for me. And it is good enough for most, most things in some sense. But, but right, to take MRI to the next level, it, it seems that there does need, uh, right, standardization, as you were show, talking about uh, quantitative MRI analysis, you have this toolbox, um, uh, published that in, in 2020, but it's, it's, it's out there, but also with the vendors. Uh, and this is, a, you know, in an earlier podcast, I talked to vendors about you know, I, I listened to that one actually. Okay, <laughs> and I made sure you know it's two retired prominent physicists, and uh, uh, yeah, it was it was an, it was a good discussion, um, uh, but basically it was along the lines of uh, the central idea is that if there's it's sort of a chicken and egg problem in some sense where if there's not a clinical application, there's not a lot of manpower being put into it. And, but to create a clinical application of these, you, you do need uh, some serious development. Uh, uh, that's an, an integration among the vendors and some agreement on, on what to do. It is, it is a catch-22, I, I, I give them that. Yeah. And I think it's more, so the way that I would like to approach this problem is, uh, I don't think mandating vendors or shaming them works. In general, I just don't think it's the way to do reproducible research. Uh, I'm always more on, let's find some prestige, something that nobody else can accomplish because of being more transparent and being more, um, I don't know, reproducible. And that's the approach we are taking. So uh, there's a couple of initiatives. It's not just a QMR lab. There's also a project called GammaStar. They're trying to write vendor neutral sequences. Now, whether you take it and you have an interpreter that uh, converts it to IDEA, it converts it to EPIC, uh, th those are the programming languages of Siemens and GE. Yeah. And sorry, I'm only talking about two vendors, uh, you know, yeah. but it can generalize. Uh, or you write in a common language that runs on a platform that is vendor agnostic. There, there's a lot of possibility to explore there. Our choice is to do that. We're actually writing in a language called SpinBench, developed by Stanford, that has been around for a long time, and it's open source. Okay. But if you want to execute a pulse sequence written in SpinBench, the easiest way to do it is you uh, do it using RT-Hawk. RT-Hawk is the real-time imaging um, uh, system, also developed at Stanford by my colleagues, uh, Juan Santos, uh, Bill Overall, Graham Wright. 
Uh, and uh, basically, they started a company out of this. Yes. And they are compatible with both GE and Siemens. Okay. So there we are, writing open source, putting the sequence on GitHub. And if people want to implement in any other way, that's fine. But you have RT Hawk that can actually run that sequence, the exact same sequence, on both scanners, bypassing their you know, intellectual property regarding the software. So yeah. they can control over the, over the hardware. Yeah, so, I, so it reminds me a little bit of the long time ago, there was an SMS consoles uh, that, would, that were somewhat independent of, of the scanner. But also, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I've had this discussion before. Um, if you have open source software, uh, there's this, you know, usually vendors say, well, you have to get FDA approval and you have to get, um, uh, it has to be sort of uh, established in some sense of, and so who does that? And, and how do you so actually- Here's yeah. the, the beautiful thing about RT Hawk. It is FDA approved. It is FDA approved for cardiac imaging, including some quantitative metrics. It's okay. real time, you can change the shimming, it's useful to clinicians. And I see QMR Lab writing on top of this as an app store. You know, here you are, uh, given hardware that, uh, given a system, it's not hardware, it's software, given a system that is FDA approved, that can control the uh, proprietary hardware, yeah. And then it's a matter of let's put things on there for research purposes. It's easy. Okay. So there is a common platform. And then at some point we see something that's truly useful to a clinician. Let's try to get another FDA added uh, approval to the existing one. Yeah. So yeah. of course it's going to take a while and you know, you, you can't support thousands of, of apps like that, each getting FDA approval. But to me, the analogy is the telephone, you know, the cell phone uh, you have uh, Hardware, it used to be about the hardware you had. It was really important which patents you had about the hardware. At some point that stopped being as relevant. Some is open source, Android is, some is not, Apple, whatever. But they run the same apps. Yes. And the app store is where they make their money at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I'm going. I don't want to shame the vendors as much as to tell them, look, there's untapped potential here. Yes, there's opportunity. Quantitative MRI apps that you implement not as black boxes, but as this kind of you know, app store approach that's what gives you more users. That's what gets clinicians using it. Yes. And yeah. there have been some efforts on, on all vendors to create their own app store, but I think it makes more sense if there's a common app store that people can be uh, uh, using regardless of uh, which scanner they have. You know, like you want to run, I don't know what, Viber, doesn't matter if you're running it on Android or iPhone. Yeah. It's still the same app. Yeah, and it's, it, I totally, I, I, I see exactly, I mean, it's certainly, certainly that can apply also for, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this with you know having post-processing in the cloud, for instance, with fMRI. But you can also you could have sort of like this sort of centralized uh, source. And for pulse sequences, though, it's still a little bit more tricky because it's sort of very much tied in with the you know there's firmware and then there's the you know the, the idiosyncrasies of each scanner. Um, but having a translation that it would be awesome. Even the field strength is not the same. Different yeah. vendors don't ramp up this, the the field to the same three Tesla that we think they do. Yes. Uh, so of course, there's going to be variability, yeah. and it's a matter of just eliminating as much of the variability as possible. Yeah. You know, if I can run the same sequence designed in open source language and run it on a scanner, I can account for the differences in hardware because it's easy to try it. Let's try it once, twice, three times. Let's model. Let's remove. And that's what that original Nature Medicine paper that we spoke about really did. It's yes. a T1. It's different at 1.5 Tesla. It's different at three Tesla. It's different at 0.5. I think they also had 0.5. But look, there is an equation that can make your micromolecular tissue volume to be identical on all field strengths. Yes. So yeah. there you go. And now, you know, all gradient strengths and all shimming uh, uh, conditions. Of course, it's tough, 
but it's transparent and we have the specs. So yeah. we could reverse engineer whatever parameter we want and it's not easy, but everything else is just broken. You, know, you, can't, you can't do it any other way, or at least I can't think of another way to do quantitative MRI. Yes, yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's a nice way to leverage, like right now the, the culture is basically, like you said, you have your physicists working their basement and working with a very hard to work with pulse sequences on either end. I mean, both GE and, uh, you know, and you're, and they, they have something, it's sort of, you know, they have, and then companies distribute this to some degree to research with research agreements, but it's very, it's very slow and it's very, uh, it's very, very limited. And this would leverage a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more intellectual energy from a lot more people uh, and, and sort of start an entire area in this regard, I think. So I totally agree with you. This is great. I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. I really do. I mean, the Eastern European in me tends to look at very negatively at things, but I am very optimistic about the future of MRI research. Uh, it's just the way we practice it. And that's partly vendor responsibility, partly academia responsibility. The incentive structure is kind of off, but yeah. there is a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I think we could really be do some, doing some amazing things. Yeah. And so where do you see it going? I mean, so where do you see uh, as far as before we jump into your, uh, you know, all your effort with communication and, and transparency as well, where do you see, you know, maybe how long do you think it will take? Maybe 10 years, 20 years uh, before, you know, the landscape of, 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 you know, it's no longer, it seems outdated just to have a vendor and have their pulse sequences and hope for the best. I mean, how, when will the field be sort of transformed to this sort of new way of, of doing yeah, it? So you got the, the, the pessimist in me will tell you never. <laughs> uh, and I mean, it's, it's, it's not an uninformed response. It's basically, you know, the, things tend to be very stochastic, very random. And for a while you think like, this has to change. It will definitely change. Everybody thought Elsevier is gonna disappear in the nineties because of the internet and it didn't, it stayed exactly the same. Yes. So for that reason, historically, I would say that probably never, but if it does, I think it's gonna be driven by a lot of these changes in the way we think of data and code. They're becoming more and more fundamental to the way we do science. Yes. So if we want to stay relevant, we need to go beyond writing our little equations or showing our static figures and then doing all the experiments independently of that. And there needs to be kind of this connection end to end from the beginning, from the model, all the way to the publication, but it needs to be turnkey. It needs to be a single button. MRI is very interdisciplinary, but the clinician doesn't know that, it doesn't need to know because they just click the button or you know, yeah. the technologist does, tweak some parameters and out comes an image worth a thousand words. Yes. In quantitative MRI, we need thousands of words just to get us to actually process the data and so yeah. much gets lost in translation. So connecting these workflows, making them data-driven, making it easy for a clinician to just execute a workflow, even if they don't understand it, knowing that it is the same workflow that their colleague is gonna do in another place, that's the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. How long it takes? Well, technologically, it's there. Yeah. I mean, I really don't think there's an obstacle to overcome uh, with, with a new breakthrough in the technology. Yeah. Culture-wise, it's not. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of like, you know, depends on where it's like a snake biting, like an Ouroboros, like a snake biting its tail. I don't know where to cut that snake. I don't know. I mean, wherever you say we can no longer do things this way, everybody else is going to follow suit. Yes. Uh, but I don't know if the vendors are the right place, or maybe it's the researchers that say, I will not publish another quantitative MRI uh, paper unless I have pure provenance of exactly what happened and everybody else can check it. Yeah. And those are cultural shifts that are really difficult to predict. You know, 20% is technological, 80% is cultural. Yeah. And 
it's all about incentives. It's all about sort of, uh, right, uh, disrupting, disrupting what's being done and actually creating these incentives for the vendors, for the researchers. Uh, for but, the you know, see, I think, I think societies have a responsibility there. You know, we, we could be awarding people that are doing the right thing. You know, like OHBM has a replication award. It doesn't apply to this level vendors. You know, OHBM is much more after the DICOM. But, uh, you know, ISMRM now has a reproducible research study group. I, I'm leading it. I just took over from Florian Knoll at NYU. Okay. Uh, we, have, we give awards for innovative reproducibility solutions. Yes. Uh, hackathons help. Anything that creates community, anything that kind of creates word of mouth is good for the field. And uh, it's happening. I mean, it's so different than even when I was starting as a PI, which was only six years ago. Yeah, so, but, yeah. But my, my, my guess though, my cynical side says, the only thing really at the bottom line is, is financial. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and it does seem like there's- money off of that. Yeah, it seems like there's, you have to get over, in this case, right. What you're talking about is getting over this activation energy to open up this, this whole landscape of financial opportunity for the vendors, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And here's, you know, here's the interesting thing. I mean, in this whole open science community, things start meaning the exact opposite of what they started to mean. You know, for example, uh, the very word patent in Latin comes from pantera, which is opening. <laughs> you know, it's like actually making something available for inspection. And even in Macedonian, in my own language, a patent actually means a zipper. <laughs> uh, and yet somehow we're against patents and I can see why, but of course the financial element is so important and you don't need to make everything free to make it reproducible. I think that is the biggest dilemma, the biggest uh, uh, what illusion we have to fight. Yeah. No, I mean, Linux makes money. Uh, uh, many uh, MP2 Rage is a sequence that was developed open source, you know, and now it's a stock product on on Siemens. I think it's one of the success stories in that respect. Yes. So well, everybody needs to choose what they will share. Mandating everything needs to be open because otherwise we're not going to use you. No, but you don't want to share the data because of privacy issues. Create a synthetic data set. You yeah. don't want to share your post processing. Uh, sorry, you don't want to share your pulse sequence. Share your post processing. Compress sensing. Mickey Lustig's big contribution to MRI. He didn't share the pulse sequence. He didn't violate any IP. He just made the code available online freely. Yeah. And then people would start buying compressed sensing tools. <laughs> uh, and now there's MR fingerprinting, which again, it's driven by IP, but you need to shine some light on the process. Yes. So of course it is financial and the vendors and the other players need to realize that there is money to be made and yet not sacrifice, not skimp on reproducibility. Yes, yeah. And yep, yeah, it's, it's tough, it is. Yeah, um, it's just a process, but I'm 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 optimistic for the most part. Uh, I, I think that will will go slowly, probably, but it might open up tremendously uh, in some in some way. It might be very nonlinear in this regard. So it will uh, be. It will be. I just hope it happens in my lifetime. You know, like that's that's what I'm really. <laughs> I have a feeling. I have a feeling it will. I, I'm I'm optimistic. Uh, uh, if anything, MRI MRI keeps on uh, evolving in ways that um, I mean. It's, it's huge and it keeps on evolving in ways that are, are slightly unexpected all the time. So I think it'll, it'll be surprising. So uh, along those lines, uh, uh, similar, uh, you, know, you, you had fostered uh, one of the things you, you had as a workshop on, on reproducibility with MRI and um, you, know, you have various, various researchers and vendors, but also in general, uh, you're very much and, and also more than I think almost anyone I know, you straddle MRI and, and brain mapping, 
and you also do a little bit of cardiac work as well, but, but, and also you straddle uh, open science and you, you create all these uh, 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 sort of packages that for or toolboxes for, for, for sharing, uh, for processing data, but also you communicate uh, as well. You, you, uh, you're very much involved with the Canadian Open Neuroscience Platform, COMP. Uh, uh, you've created these toolbox for quantitative MRI analysis and also for spinal cord analysis. Uh, you, are, uh, you, you founded the MRM Highlights, uh, which is, has evolved to, to a blog. And also you've been very much part of the uh, initial stages of, of the OHBM brain mapping blog. So why is this important to you? And uh, you're obviously very good at it. And, and, and so what, how does this, what value do you see in, in, in terms of pursuing this? So, yeah, I, how can I answer this? You know what, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just go with my gut reaction, which is I do a lot of things out of spite. <laughs> you know, I notice something is wrong and I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to fix it until people agree that, yeah, this is better now. <laughs> so anyway, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that kind of negative motivation is, is constructive or healthy even. So what was wrong? What was wrong in, that, in this regard? Well, I, okay, so I think PDFs are wrong, okay? PDFs are 20th century. They're not even 20th century, they're 16th century. <laughs> they're, they're, they're piling up. And I mean, I love the format, <laughs> don't get me wrong. It's just academic articles as PDFs are wrong. And here we are, uh, first, as I said, in the 90s thinking, oh, you know, the internet is gonna change anything. It changed nothing. We're still stuck in the same static document regime and uh, papers just keep piling up. Yeah. You know, there's so many of them. And then we say we read them. Scientists claim that they read more than 300 papers a year, meaning a paper a day from a yeah. survey, but we don't. I mean, we Not skim really. the figure. Right. We, we kind of, you know, maybe look at an abstract, maybe, maybe less and less so because the papers are just not interesting enough. Yes. They're getting longer, more jargony, and all the interesting stuff happens in the peer review process, but I have no insight into that. Yes. I would kill to actually read the peer review of the articles that I'm supposed to be reading, and yet I don't. So I wanted my blogs to serve that purpose. You know, uh, Let's get people to first understand something that's outside of their uh, narrow field of expertise, and then get a discussion going at a level that is peer reviewed, you know, it's not just chit chat, but it's understandable to more than five people. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I have the stats, I've handled papers as an editor, I've looked at downloads. The, the stats are really depressing. The, the yeah. blogs we started, many of the blog posts have more reads than the original article they're highlighting has downloads. Yeah. So maybe that's not a bad thing, except I want to go beyond the PDF. And yeah. I'm, you know, I, I just can't stand salami slicing work. You take your grant and you salami slice it into five PDFs that you know yourself you're not going to read, but it's publish or perish, and you're stuck in the hamster wheel. Yeah. Uh, so to me, it was that reaction. Now I'm a professor, tenure track, safe. Now I'm going to do what I've always thought is necessary for the field. And maybe I overdid it. <laughs> there was a point in which I was running three communication committees, but it did open a lot of doors. Yes. And I feel like now, not only it opened doors for me, that's great, of course, you know, we all do it for some personal satisfaction, but also it created a community of people I can talk to. I mean, I met you through this, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, we probably would have never interacted because you do fMRI work. I've never touched fMRI. Yeah. And yet we have this common interest in making science better. And that's what's important. 
So at this meta level, it's really key and it's consumed a lot of my time, but I'm good at delegating. I'm good at building groups to kind of do different things. And I'm also good at letting go. Like these three initiatives are now alive and well without me because I feel like now I want to turn more to publishing, but the science communication aspect exists. It's not gonna go away. The OHBM log is there. We keep adding content, this podcast being an example. Yes. MRM Highlights is now run by a software developer in my lab. And when Peter Jezzard came in, the new editor in chief, we agreed that it's gonna focus on reproducibility. So back when I was running it, Matt Bernstein was picking the papers. I was just doing the interviews. Now we have a reproducibility deputy editor that picks papers and highlights why they're important. And it's still this beautiful you know, magazine that gets distributed at live conferences. And we throw a party and the party attracts a thousand people. And reluctantly, I've come to accept that role as somebody's got to do it. Yes. And, uh, and I think it's, it's moving the field forward. Well, I think, uh, yeah. And I think you can almost think about it in terms of, okay, so we have this information that we, you know, we, we do our research, we create information, we, we package it into a PDF, which is complete, completely, it's, it's insufficient for, for on many levels, as you said. And so what you're doing in some sense is sort of uh, either curating and and allowing it to spread in different ways. Uh, and also, I mean, there's so many ways of looking at this. I mean, you have the toolboxes that sort of allow the knowledge to be sort of centralized and disseminated better, but also you have the blogs, which allows the information to be sort of curated in a way that's that other people can appreciate more and spread further as well, it seems. Oh. The cynic will say, I'm just adding noise. <laughs> I, I, I say that to myself every now and then. But I feel it's really more, you just kind of give people the choice of what they want to consume. Uh, I, I, remember, I don't know if that was like a Malcolm Gladwell book or something. They were talking about how everybody was trying to come up with a perfect ketchup. And for a while, you know, like yes. Heinz was the only ketchup. And then they were like, no, actually you create a couple of different Heinz ketchups and then somebody finds, you know, what they like. Yes. Uh, so I think that's what we're doing, you know? PDFs just don't do it for me. They really don't. I'm a fast reader, but I derive no pleasure out of it. Right. An interactive visualization where I can play with the data on, yeah. a, on an HTML uh, page. Oh, I, I mean, I could do that for hours. Yeah. And it really brings me joy. And it, so, and it does, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. And it, it really does go, it does, you know, and, and exactly if you look at that, I mean, you, you read a PDF and if, if you were reading a PDF and trying to figure something out and then doing it, it seems that that whole process is, is, is very slow. I mean, ultimately that's what the goal of science is, is that to, the information goes from the PDF into your brain and then somehow it's translated into other things you do, but it's so imperfect and it's so lossy in some yeah, sense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're gonna salami slice and we are because we all need our promotions and our recognition, at least salami slice in a way that serves different kinds of people. You know, salami slice a pre-registration, salami slice a data availability statement and share the data, salami slice a code article and you know, you can share it via binder and you can make it executable and salami slice a blog post that kind of tells the story rather than try to put all of this in one little thing that doesn't work anymore. Yes. So I think you could still get your five articles. They can all get a DOI and yet you will be serving a broader portion of the community with different needs. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly. So, what do you think the future of of you know it, it does? And people always worry because right, if you don't have a PDF, you know, there's not um, you know, it's not. So, if you have like living documents, or if you have code that you keep on adding to, uh, right? Like you said, it's hard to. I mean, you could have a DOI, but it's sort of uh, people like PDFs because it's a package, and they say, okay, I published this many papers and this how many citations. Uh, whereas if you start to get uh, more in the realm of um, 
uh, where it's, it's disseminated in different ways or it's implemented in different ways or it's a living document, you start, yeah, I mean, people maybe feel where is the, uh, where's the credits in some sense. No, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and again, I think that's gonna come down to the incentive structure and somebody who's gonna do it right and get you know, a lot of prestige for it will pave the way for others. You know, the first article that just makes a boom because it was innovative, it's kind of like what gets you on the front page. I mean, I don't know if you follow mainstream media and how they play with formats. Like there's this uh, uh, snowfall feature in New York Times, which was really revolutionary 10, 10 years ago. Uh, and I can think of some beautiful Huffington Post visualizations. I was reading those articles just because they were so multimedially attractive. Yes. And uh, the moment people see that, they start replicating it. They start doing the same thing. Now, the problem is to publish, you pay $3,000 to get a PDF. Yeah. And that makes the money. So the incentive is let's just crank out the PDFs because that's the profitable thing. Yeah. The moment a journal says, well, you know what? We can maybe host some data and we can tie it in with nice executable code. And we're going to charge the same amount because you know that still covers quite a lot of the cost or maybe charge slightly extra because it's more that's when people are like, oh, this is actually a real thing. This gets you credit and uh, it changes the incentive structure. Yes. So I, I think that's what's uh, uh, going to drive forward, not mandating. You can't, but just really explaining to people that if you do things this way, you increase your probability of being noticed. Now, your probability was very low to start with. The prior yeah. was very low <laughs> yeah. because, you know, the, there's a pile of papers that nobody reads. This just increased your chances just a little bit. Maybe it's not 0.1%, now it's 1%, but it's 10 tuple the, the potential. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I hope that happens and I'm not holding my breath, but <laughs> doing my best. <laughs> I mean, how can you imagine, like, like for instance, uh, once again, in, in 10 or 20 years, um, as far as the, the landscape of, of, I mean, is it, it, it you know, publication, Sharing code, sharing data—is it all going to sort of merge together? Even even the concept of, of of you know curating it for for other people as as well. I mean, so is it somehow is it's going to be morphed in some way? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I again possible that everything's going to stay the same, right? We we know that. Uh, but um, I'm trying to you know draw parallels again with history of science. The reason science science has gotten way more collaborative and science has gotten um, uh, way more computationally intensive. So that's part of the reason that, you know, we're, we're operating completely differently. Take a look at, I don't know, 50 or hundred years ago, telephone was the only way to reach a scientist or write a letter. And now we have Slack channels that are being bombarded constantly. That needs to be reflected in the final output. Yes. One way I see it happen, and I mean, my biggest, my biggest problem with publications at the moment, it's not just the PDF, it's the peer review process. I feel that peer review is a great idea that somewhere got lost in the pile of conflicts of interest and implicit biases because it's hidden. And I'm not saying people should go out and sign their reviews. That's not the point. It could be pseudonymous or it could be anonymous. Yes. But I want to see what the reviewer said because one, then the reviewer will not feel as comfortable saying the things that I see in reviews. Yes. They'll be more constructive. And it will get a conversation going. We're not conversing. <laughs> We're just piling up the papers because that's what gets us the promotion. Yeah. So 10 to 20 years from now, I don't know, where, where do you do this? Uh, do you do it on Twitter? Well, Twitter's a jungle. Do you do it in forums? Well, forums are kind of dead. But I think the publication itself will become more living. It needs room to breathe, right? And if you give it room to breathe, it will become more alive.
because yeah. I want post-publication peer review, because I want the reviews of the, of the original work to be supplemented by other thoughts. And we're seeing that. The preprint servers already are doing some of that. Uh, there's overlay journals that just review on top of a preprint server. eLife's going that way. Uh, eLife publishes the summary of the, of the work so that you see what the reviewer said, even if you don't know who they are. That's what gets us talking because the controversial ideas cannot be stuck behind the scenes so that they get vetoed. You know, like there's a vetocracy of peer review. Yes. You need to have uh, the people approving, fact-checking if you want, to really kind of be explicit about what they recommended uh, so that I can trust the article a little more and I can trust them as reviewers. Doesn't have to be public, it could be anonymous. And I think pseudonymity has a place in science for those reasons. Yeah, you could almost imagine, I, I completely agree. I mean, you could almost imagine, I mean, even when we were starting Aperture, the Aperture Neuro Journal at yep. OHBM, and, and we, you know, one idea was that, that was thrown around and obviously not pursued because there just wasn't any structure to support it is having some, sort of a, a Reddit sort of like format or an Amazon format where paper gets out there, it just gets published. And, and then you have this ongoing stream of, uh, reviews that are either up, upvoted or downvoted for their relevance, or even you can you know rate the paper on a certain star system or ranking system or things like that. And after the fact, after it's published, um, which so might... yes, but the conversation starters are the original peer reviewers. It's so much easier when you have three opinions not agreeing with each other to say, okay, I disagree with this, but I think this is great. Yes. Then somebody, usually junior, spent a lot of time reading that paper to actually say, now I'm actually going to get a conversation going about this. Yes. You have the authorities. They started a conversation. They kept it hidden. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not good. It's yeah. not good for uh, science. I totally agree. And so getting, having that, having that out there, put that, and you know, that paper still has to be above a threshold for, for publication, and then having the re initial reviews, and you can imagine having this, this wonderful uh, interactive discussion, and even imagine the paper being updated, potentially. Uh, of course, you know, of course, that's, that's a living document, right? That's yeah. why it's living. It's not set in stone. Yeah. It's not set on paper. <laughs> yeah, someone will try that uh, to that extent. I, I haven't seen any article, uh, any sort of scientific um, uh, platforms like that yet, but uh, I think we're getting closer. There's bits and pieces, you know, and it, it, it hopefully it becomes a smorgasbord. You know, you again, you pick what you what you want, and that kind of you know satisfies the hunger and the curiosity uh, because there's no one fit one one fit all whatever that expression is a solution. Yes, yeah. one size fits all. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> this has been a whirlwind discussion. Uh, everything from uh, you know your history, uh, your your work with Mylan, and it all kind of hangs together. Uh, yeah, we managed to keep a coherent thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, certainly, you know, what you're doing needs and would benefit from reproducibility, which benefits from open science, uh, which is all linked to open science for publishing as well and, and, and sharing data, sharing information. And you're, in, you're engaged in all these processes, which is actually really, really cool. So, so yeah, I, I look forward Glad to- somebody it. agrees, so <laughs> thank you, Peter. <laughs> I love it, I love it. And, and, uh, and I think I find, my, I find myself um, pushing in that direction, not to the extent that you have yet, but I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to go a little bit more uh, uh, in fostering that. And uh, who knows, uh, maybe if enough this, of us sort of collectively work. This podcast is doing an incredible service to the community. And uh, we've spoken in the past, I've always wanted to get a podcast going with OHBM, you actually made it happen. So thank you for continuing to uh, push forward and uh, hope we have a chance to catch up uh, soon.
Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm doing what I can. And, uh, and thanks to people like you. Uh, it's making hopefully the podcast, uh, people listen to it, and people will love this one. So, all right. Well, well, thank you very much, Nicola. And uh, um, I wish you the best in the future. I'm sure we'll be interacting more. Thank you, Peter. Same to you. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping, and is produced by Anastasia Brovkin, Ekaterina Dobrikova, Katie Moran, Niels Mulert, Kevin Zetek, and me, Rachel Stickland.